0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to Blue Mountain Village Voices.
0: Joining us today is Jerry Whelan, owner and broker of record at Remax at Blue Realty. Jerry has operated this Blue Mountain-based real estate company for more than a decade and prior to that time, was a broker of record for Playground Real Estate Limited, a central part of the team that built and sold Blue Mountain Village as we know it today. Jerry spent a lot of time working in many roles at Tremblant, and as we learn in the podcast, actually started a brewery many years ago. I've had the pleasure of serving with Jerry, with our Blue Mountain Village Foundation, raising funds and giving back to our local community. During this interview, we discuss the real estate industry, the hot South Georgian Bay market, planning for growth, and sustaining communities. Thanks for joining us, Jerry.
1: Andrew, you know, thank you for having me. Uh, it's it's a pleasure to be on your podcast and to help out the BMVA and our and our uh, owners in any way I can.
0: Tell us how you got started in the real estate business.
1: Well, my career passed... You know was very unintentional you said the uh, the podcast is going to be about an hour so i'll try to keep it short and not take up the whole hour with my career you know i'm a montreal kid who moved up to mont tremblant because i had a dream of you know being a ski instructor and you know going up through the ranks in the ski world and you know that sort of took me till I was, you know, early 30 or so. And, and uh, with a wife and a couple of kids, you figure out that you've got to make a little bit more money and Peter Pan has to grow up. Uh, that's when I started a beer company called Montremblant Beer and ran that um, successfully for a few years until my distributor, my, my uh, producer at the time went bankrupt and I kind of didn't have a supplier for a while. And, and uh, a good friend of mine who was vice president of uh, real estate for IntraWest back at Mont Tremblant, who was a great supporter of Mont Tremblant beer, said to me, hey, listen, I, I hear that your beer supply is kind of, uh, you know, run dry. Uh, would you like to come in and uh, work for us and sell some real estate for Interwest? And I said, you know what? It sounds like a good idea for me. And uh, I jumped on board at Tremblant and it was about that time that uh, IntraWest uh, purchased Blue Mountain. So let's call it 1999-ish or so. They had plans to build the village and develop a golf course, real estate. Uh, I saw that there was an opportunity with Blue Mountain and they asked me to come down and be part of the, the uh, sales and marketing team. And so I jumped on it. I've been here now for 21 years, you know, selling real estate in the capacity of either you know, just a salesman or the broker of record for Playground Air West, or sales manager or owner and broker of record of Remax. So, it's been a 21 year journey here in the real estate market. A short uh, time at Trombley, but the majority of my time here at, uh, at at Blue Mountain.
0: Wow, I did not know about your brewery business. That is really interesting. That sounds like it was probably a lot of fun.
1: It was a crazy run. It was a that's that's a whole podcast in and of itself.
0: Well, you clearly caught the hospitality bug and that, I think, leads to why you're so service-oriented as a realtor today.
1: Yeah, I was right in there at the time and I had some instant success, which was really wonderful. You know, some notoriety in mont It felt pretty good to be, you know, 35 and walking down the street and everybody's drinking my beer. So it was uh, it was a fun chapter until it wasn't fun anymore.
0: You said something else that strikes me. Uh, that is very similar to what others have told me during interviews, and that is that your career path was not planned. It it sort of evolved over time. Do you think that is something that is perhaps unique to the tourism industry?
1: Well, you know, in terms of the resort industry, I think that what happens is young people, when I was, you know, whatever I was, 19, 18, 19, you look at Mont-Tremblant, with these big eyes of how much fun you can have up there and how great it'll be and what a lifestyle that you'll have and you'll ski and make money at the same time. And then work there in the summer, wherever I, I worked as director of the beach and tennis club in the summertime as well. It's a very different path than say going to McGill or, uh, going to Western and getting your BCom or, uh, m b a or becoming a lawyer where it's a, a very clear shot, a clear focus to you. whereas when you go and work at a resort you become as you move up almost a jack of all trades. What you end up trying to do is as you get older you try and make it, make more money and so as you move up through the ranks, you become a supervisor and then you become a director and then you become you know, uh, maybe a vice president, and and you learn the ropes along the way, and I and so that's why I think it's sort of an in, indirect path in the resort industry, and I think that if you were to talk to some of the Intrawest guys back in the day, who became senior management, they got their start in ski patrol, like Hugh Smythe was. Uh, you know, it was a classic example of he went to work for Joe Hussein back in back in the days of Whistler. And you know, became a, a senior president or vice president. So, I think it it is a really indirect path in the in the resort business, and you learn to become a jack of all trades.
0: How has that experience influenced your leadership style in your real estate business?
1: There's very much similarities because back in my early days at Trombley, I was I was put in leadership positions as you know, uh, supervisor on the ski school and then head of the race department and director of the beach and tennis club. And, and uh, so I, I always had people working underneath me and uh, my management style, I think is, is very simple, which is uh, try and hire the best people uh, who are honest and forthright uh, and uh, hire based on character rather than skill. Uh, teach them what they they need to know, and don't micromanage people. Uh, as a generality, people will come to you when they when they need help and advice, uh, rather than uh, being over their shoulder and and, and micromanaging everything. So, it, it's something that in the office the the staff know very well that I am not going to micromanage them, but they can come to me anytime they want when they need help. And having hired some somebody who is of good character, uh, has always served me well.
0: We talk often about the labor shortage in our region. Does that impact recruiting realtors in a real estate context?
1: You know, the the perception of the general public is that real estate agents make a lot of money. And in some cases, real estate agents do, the very successful ones, but as we well know, it's usually the 80-20 rule, which is the 20% at the top that are really grinding it out and, and, you know, working the 60 and 70-hour weeks, they're making the money. But somebody who's working, you know, just casually at it or not really putting uh, time into it, you're not going to make as much money. So, you know, there are always people that are coming and going. My little brokerage, there's 10 of us now, you know, I started off with just me alone, uh, 10 years ago. And so I've gone at a very slow pace about, you know, one real estate agent per year.
0: Yeah. I think what you're saying, and I agree with it is that cultural fit is most important and it's worth the wait to find the right people. And that can facilitate a bit more of an organic growth process with your team.
1: Very much so. It is a cultural thing. And I understand that, you know, there are other brokerages, uh, Century 21 or Chestnut Park, or there's some terrific brokerages uh, out there. Royal LePage Locations North, uh, Desvon Teichman, who I have a great relationship. He's the owner there. It's a different different type of brokerage and different type of culture. And uh, so we all, mine is, you know, if very, I think, uh, Andrew your uh, your word organic is is uh, very well suited to you know how I operate in terms of recruiting people at, at Remax at Blue
0: You raise a really good point. I think sometimes people think that real estate businesses are sort of a one size fits all. And the truth is that every organization has a different culture, different approach. Some are larger, some are smaller, some have different areas of focus. So I guess that's good advice for anyone is make sure you uh, know who you're working with and that you have a bit of a shared uh, expectations.
1: Yes. and, And the other thing too, Andrew, is there's very many different business models for real estate brokerages as well and where they put their emphasis on. So you're right, uh, uh, describing it as it's not one size fits all. That's very accurate.
0: Could you give us a few examples of some of those different models? I think that might help people uh, understand those differences better.
1: Sure. REMAX, Realtron, you know, I, I don't know all the ins and outs, but they have about 800 agents. A lot of their model is they rent them cubicles or office space. So they're very very concerned with making sure that they're getting in fees from their real estate agents for space rental and incidentals rather than uh, taking a cut off of their, uh, off of their commissions. So they're sort of guaranteeing their money upfront at the end of the day, Every brokerage wants to make somewhere between twenty dollars and $40,000 per agent. Now, whether they get it through their commissions or whether they get it through renting them office space, that would be a different model, which is more, say, that, that bigger brokerage model where they're renting them space and getting money off of incidentals.
0: I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Tell us about how COVID-19 impacted the business operations of realtors.
1: Well, it, it, it has been absolutely insane. Um, first of all, we can describe the the pandemic as insane. You know, I remember back in March of 2020, when we got our, our first real, I would say it was the stay-at-home order on or around March the 15th of 2020, you know, my office being in the village and it, the village is a very thriving, bustling, crazy kind of place. Going from that, Environment to a ghost town overnight was a completely crazy place. I say to some people, sometimes I would walk into the village and I would feel like I was in a movie where I was the last man on earth. And that was a very frightening um, sort of time to think, oh my goodness, what is going to happen to my brokerage? What is going to happen to real estate? Uh, everybody is frozen in time as of March the 16th with these stay-at-home orders. Well, wait a minute, you can't even see a property. I was uh, looking into you know how much savings the brokerage had where I you know had my resources and so on and how you know potentially how how long was this going to last and projecting into the future what what my expenses were going to be and it was, it was a very concerning time, I'm sure, for for many, many, many businesses. And then, you know, fast forward to July of 2020, when the, the stay-at-home order was lifted and the village essentially opened up again, another crazy time, but a crazy time in a different way. The village was insane. It was like an elastic band that had been pulled and then released where people could now get out and enjoy themselves and the hotels were running at 90% occupancy and the village was crazy and the and the restaurants were booming and people were coming into the into the office and real estate just took off between mid July and let's say mid November of 2020 the volume of real estate was incredible. We could just barely keep up. People were buying things like crazy. So it was a very, very different time again. And then, you know, December the 26th of 2021, things changed again. So it has been a wild roller coaster ride of just adapting to things on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, you know, trying to make the best of every situation that arises.
0: A lot of businesses that were physical in nature had to pivot to de- uh, online delivery. So thinking about showing a house remotely or through a mobile phone or, or doing video tours, I'm wondering, how was that to adapt to? Did, did realtors benefit from that same pivot strategy?
1: Well, there are more properties selling up here in the area. One of the topics that we were going to talk about was the ability for people to stay at home and work, and this has had a a huge impact on people who are coming up to Blue Mountain and Collingwood to, you know, where they used to go to work, you know, five days a week in an office tower, and 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 I'll use my brother-in-law. As a perfect example, he is a partner with KPMG. He's the auditor of, of uh, the Royal Bank of Canada, the senior auditor. And uh, that's a pretty big job when you have to audit the Royal Bank of Canada. You know, in the, in the past 10 months or so, he's uh, he told me he's been in the office like four or five times. The chief auditor of the Royal Bank of Canada for KPMG is working remotely, these are complex jobs. So if you can imagine other people with similar jobs are discovering that, you know, I can do this. I can make it happen. I can be productive and get everything I have to do done, but I can do it up at Blue Mountain. And when I finish work, I'm going to get on my bike and I'm going to go for a mountain bike somewhere through the area or hiking or play golf or not that you can't do that in Toronto, but certainly this is a, a, a beautiful area to be able to do it. Our office and I'm I'm of the older generation. We were not doing digital viewings. Well, we got into it because of COVID nineteen, but it was not a uh, a work habit that we would take our iPhone and and walk a client through a property digitally. That was the old model of, you know, when can you get up here? see the property was how we worked because it's, you know, real estate is a real touch and feel thing. Oftentimes people can walk into a property and within 30 seconds, they get a vibe as to whether they like it or they don't like it. And you don't get that digitally. You don't get that, that feeling, that, that, that real textured in your gut, in your bones feeling. So uh, we were still showing things, um, you know, with COVID protocols, with masks, getting permission from sellers, getting permission from buyers, you know, using gloves, using hand sanitizer, using masks, limiting viewings to maybe just one person in the house at a time and the spouse or the partner would would wait outside and we then we'd bring that person through. So we had to make accommodation like that. But whenever we could, we want to get people into the property. And I know I, I was watching. I think it was NBC yesterday, and or, or I was YouTubing it, and they were talking about you know the shortage of real estate in the United States, and they were astounded that you know five percent of people who bought real estate never you know entered the property, and I thought that number would have been bigger actually over over COVID, but obviously ninety five percent of people still want to go in there and they want to open up the kitchen cabinets and find out what the vibe is like before they lay down whatever the number is, 500,000, a million, $2 million. We're talking about a lot of money for people just to look at things through an iPhone and say, yeah, I'm ready to drop half a million dollars.
0: I think that's a very fair point, Jerry, be careful of the data and, and, and really understand what it means. And of course, a point in time, April over April does compare really two different extremes. Um, but it's getting a lot of media attention. So does the media have it right? Is there really this real estate boom? Or is there more to the story?
1: Whenever you analyze one specific point in time and compare it with another specific point in time, you've you've got to be careful to to look at what what may have been the cause. So let's go back in time to April of 2020, where there was obviously less sales taking place. The stay-at-home order was in March, about March 15th of 2020. And this was, let's call it um, the first big stay-at-home order, and the first big wave when everybody was really frightened. And when everyone's really frightened, they're holding hard on their purse strings at that point. They're saying, we don't know what's happening here. It's not a good time for us to make a million-dollar decision. And so, that first hit that we took with the COVID-19 stay-at-home order on March 15th was reflected in the April, 2020 sales. Now let's fast forward uh, 12 months where we didn't have a stay-at-home order. We were still rolling and people were, are let's say in March of, of cause the closing was, would have been in April. So March of 2021, you know, vaccination rates were rising. We've been living with COVID for over a year. People were being more comfortable. And in addition to that, in the previous second half of 2020, real estate was flying off the shelves. So in the first half of 2021, it's either get in or lose. So there's a big difference between, let's say January 1st, 2021 to, um, you know, the end of March, 2020, 2021 to the previous year. And that's why you see such a huge difference in those numbers. We were really, everyone was really scared in March and April of 2020.
0: Is that retiree or baby boomer market still our largest cohort of real estate purchasers?
1: Unbelievably so unbelievably so. There's uh you know a confluence of, of things that are happening at the same time. You've got people like me, 62 years old, born in 1958, 1958 and 59 was the biggest population surge of new babies in Canada. And we are either pre-retirement, one foot in, one foot out, or retired. And instead of paying property taxes in Rosedale or wherever the property taxes are higher and the the values are higher, they come up here and they can buy a beautiful home for a million and a half dollars, sell their home for two and a half or $3 million in Toronto and come up here and have an incredible lifestyle. So that is putting a lot of pressure on prices in the area. And even the retirees that are my age that have not been let's say partners in KPMG or senior vice presidents for scotia bank or whatever that the the wife was a school teacher for 25 years and the husband was a police officer and they're on pensions and they can come up here and buy something for $750,000 which is not the 1.5 million this is a very attractive place for them to be so it is a large cohort, but what's putting so much pressure on prices is the additional cohorts. It is the 45 year old successful people that are coming up here. And want to have a weekend place, and their their kids are twelve and ten, and they're in the race program at Craigleith or Georgian Peaks, and they want a, a piece of the action as well. So they're putting pri- uh, pressure on prices. And then you have the investor client that's looking for the the short term rental condominiums and the Airbnb phenomenon. So everybody thinks that they're going to get rich by put, you know buying a resort home and putting it on Airbnb, and so they're putting upward pressure pressure on prices. And then there's the first time buyers that just, you know, are trying to find anything down at the low end and are getting pushed out to Meaford to buy something for, you know, three hundred and fifty dollars or $400,000. So at every strata of, of uh, price level, there's pressure.
0: So really what you're saying is demand is high. Prices, of course, are responding to that and it is tough to find the property that you might want in the price range you're looking for. But overall, the number of units sale or sold continues to grow, which means the demand is strong, and it is still uh, resulting in turnover of units. So that is uh, a good thing. It means that there's still interest in the market. I want to dive a little deeper into some of the different market segments. Let's start with vacation properties. This is a big portion of the local market. And I would define vacation properties as, I'll give you a few examples from the past. You have timeshare units, chalets or cottages. There are resort units in different developments. Uh, There are individual standalone properties that are short-term rentals rented through places like Airbnb when you're not using them and then you're using them for your private use when you are here. What would you say is the most popular vacation property investment and why?
1: Well, the preferred investment that we deal day in and day out uh, at the brokerage is the um, self-driven or uh, self-managed, quote-unquote, Airbnb, VRBO type of property. That is the high demand for the investors. And the reason for that is uh, Airbnb or VRBO charge a, a small percentage Uh, rather than a large rental manager that can charge 50%, 40%, 30%. I think Airbnb and VRBO are somewhere around the 10 to 15% mark. And so the take home is, is much larger. What not everybody understands is there is a management side to uh, owning a short-term accommodation rental. And the, Somebody's got to take care of it and and manage it and keep it clean and keep it safe and everything that goes into it. So, but to answer your question, it's it's easy to it's easy for me to see because I see properties that that you are capable of getting a short-term accommodation license for, that they have gone up in value much, much more than just about any other product. I, uh, I don't have the statistics in front of me or on the tip of my tongue. I'm just talking empirically from what I see on a day-to-day basis that a, for example, a Rivergrass condominium just off the resort, a two-bedroom that I couldn't give away for $300,000, you know, three or four years ago is now selling for $800,000. That is a big jump. Why is that jump so big? It's the Airbnb and VRBO phenomenon.
0: I would imagine another market force that is um, increasing those valuations is the fact that those types of properties are regulated in the town of Blue Mountains and some of our neighboring municipalities where there's only so many properties that can be owned and operated that way. So it's a small pool and therefore demand and price is going to rise.
1: Well, I think Blue Mountain, the town of the Blue Mountain and Collingwood have done a pretty good job in zoning where they can do it and can't do it. And and I think they've done it in a fair and equitable way in terms of they've zoned the places where short-term accommodation has more or less always taken place in and around the resort. And the last thing that you want to do as a purchaser who buys a $1.5 million home is have somebody next to you who also paid $1.5 million and it's a party house and that you cannot experience the quote unquote quiet enjoyment that you're entitled to as a homeowner. In the town of the Blue Mountains in Collingwood, I think that they're they're handling it very conservatively and correctly in my opinion. As I said before, nobody wants to buy a home and have a party house beside them. If you have the understanding and if you have a good real estate agent who directs you and says, "Listen, you know, here's a three-bedroom condominium. It is lovely, but I just want to let you know that it's zoned for short-term accommodation. So all around you, you could have people coming and going. If you're comfortable with that and you're okay with that, then go ahead and buy it. But I'm, I just want you to understand what you're buying. And as a real estate agent, it's very, very important to make sure that people understand to their bones what they're buying and what they're getting themselves into. In, in the same way that if you were buy, if you were selling somebody a uh, golf course property that was in the hitting zone of uh, of uh, you know of, of a tee box, for example, so it's you know two hundred yards or in my case one hundred and ten yards down the, down the uh, the fairway and. Uh, you know, you're going to get golf balls in your backyard. If you're okay with it, you must understand that you're buying a golf course property and there might be golf balls coming in your backyard. You have to make people understand these things. And as long as they understand and agree to it and go, yeah, I'm good with that. Well, then you've done your job as a real estate agent.
0: Yeah. There are a number of municipalities that have implemented or are planning to implement short-term accommodation regulations. Do you see that continuing and growing?
1: You know what, it's a great point. Obviously, you know, having my brokerage in the town of the Blue Mountains and living in the town of the Blue Mountains, um, the the bylaw officers for the town of the Blue Mountains regarding short-term accommodation are on the ball. Uh, But at the end of the day, who the police are, are your neighbors. And they're the ones that are gonna contact the municipality, whether it's Collingwood or the town of the Blue Mountains and let them know that something's up with with your neighbor when they see different suitcases coming to the door every weekend and it's not zoned for that
0: well I guess you have a unique perspective in that you would be providing services to folks who want to buy residential properties and folks who want to buy uh, vacation properties or those short-term rentals uh, and or sell them are we getting it right I know you mentioned a few municipalities but do you think there's work that needs to be done
1: there yeah, I, I, I don't see this. We live in a capitalist system with supply and demand. Uh, you know, obviously there are government rules and regulations and municipal rules and regulations. But at the end of the day, you know, the market determines the prices of houses. And, you know, this is nothing new in resort communities. Whistler is a prime example where it was a sleepy little town back in 1978 You know, and the locals lived at the base of the mountain. The guys that worked on the ski patrol or ran the lifts or worked in the cafeterias, they all worked at the base, you know, lived close to town. Before you know it, you know, they're living in Squamish or further away. And the same with Mont-Tremblant. I mean, Mont-Tremblant is no longer called Mont-Tremblant Saint-Jeveille. It's all been amalgamated. But for people who know, you know, people don't that work at, at the resort don't live close to the resort. And we're seeing that here at Blue Mountain. We're seeing people getting pushed uh, either further out towards Meaford for affordable housing, whether it's purchasing or whether it's just renting. And we're seeing people getting pushed further and further away into Wasega Beach or Stainer or as far as Barry. So it is a fairly typical uh, situation for popular resorts like Aspen, Vale, Whistler, Blue Mountain, Mont-Tremblant, that the workers are getting pushed further and further away. And uh, affordable housing, whether it's rental or purchasing, is an issue for those young, you know, late 20s, early 30s people.
0: Yeah, for sure. We're experiencing that. And it, and it goes beyond just the tourism sector. So engineering, development, local municipalities, healthcare employers, they're all struggling for um, their teams to be able to live in the communities that they work in. I think the message that, that you're saying or the experience that you've tracked in other communities is that we need to be proactive in planning ahead and ensuring that the right strategies are in place to provide that housing that perhaps the market isn't
1: yeah, I, I agree 100% with you, Andrew, and I and I and I know that you're a real advocate for affordable housing. The uphill battle I feel that affordable housing faces is that we live in a capitalist system where land use is always about the highest and best value of that land. So unless you have A government organization that's willing to sacrifice profits for uh, the sake of uh, the community, a for profit builder is going to try and get as much money as they can out of a certain piece of land, you know, if they were to put up, you know, an apartment building or a condo building, you know, with um, 100 units they're at this point around here, they're going to want to get $500 a square foot, whereas, you know, affordable housing might only come in at $200 a square foot. So who's going to take that hit? Who's going to take Who who's going to do that? And it's at the end of the day, it's going to have to be a, a government or an NGO. But a, a for a for profit business is not going to take a piece of land and undervalue it just for the sake of of uh, being a good citizen and and creating some uh, affordable housing
0: switching gears just a little bit wondering if you can give us a sense from the the folks that you serve every day those who are choosing to buy properties and make the south georgian bay area their home and coming from let's say the city they have a lot of options they could choose to uh, retire or purchase properties in muskoka prince edward county niagara region Kawarthas, lots of places. What is it about our region that sets us apart? Why are people choosing to move here?
1: Number one, I I still think that comparatively speaking to places like Muskoka, the Kawarthas, Prince Edward County, Niagara, we're still very affordable. I mean, you can buy a wonderful home for one point to 1.3, 1.4, or five million dollars, uh, whereas that same home, you know, in Muskoka might be six million or seven million dollars, or in other places. So that's one factor. It puts it into perspective that we still are affordable. The other thing that we've always had on our side is we have water, and we have mountain. We have proximity to uh pearson international airport you know from town of the blue mountains to get down there it's an hour and 45 minutes so we still have that on all on, on our side we still are a four season resort and since i've been here and seen the development in Collingwood over the past 20 years, the the quote unquote shoulder seasons have shrunk smaller and smaller and smaller to there, you know, let's say there's just almost just April, maybe, and November. And that really honestly gives everybody a breakup here to paint what we have to paint and catch our breath. And for people that that are working flat out for 10 months to actually go on vacation and and take it easy. So for the the people that want to live up here and the excitement, there's tons to do, uh, particularly for outdoor people. Mountain and lake, it's a great combination. So we have a lot going on on our side, plus all the services. We have a great hospital. We have great schools. You know, we have great shopping. We have great restaurants. It's, and, and all of these things have come a long way in 20 years.
0: Well, you've seen this change over a more than 20-year horizon. What has changed? How has the community grown?
1: Well, wow. when I came here from Mont-Tremblant, I was like, did I make the right decision? You know, Collingwood was an ex-shipyard town. You know, uh, you drive up and down the uh, the quote-unquote, uh, the name of the wood streets, you know, birch and maple and poplar. And you go, wow, I, back in, you know, 1999. And there was no village, right? There was the Blue Mountain Inn. And there was Jozo's. And there was uh, Cece's out in Thornbury as a restaurant. And there wasn't a whole lot of things happening. And so as... Each little step went forward, and the village got built. It became the drawing card and the backbone for everything to be built around it. But uh, it it was uh, a sl- it was a sleepy town back in 1999. That's for
0: sure. And here we are, many years later, looking at that uh, revitalization coming to fruition. It really didn't take that long. And what it tells us is the regional plans that were set up in some instances generations ago have worked. But of course, with that success can come challenges. And we're experiencing some of those now with you know pressure on our infrastructure, the need for more services, uh, the volumes of people who are uh, visiting or, or moving here. So my question to you would be, what do you think is needed over the next 20-year horizon to keep the community great?
1: I think the the players like the Blue Mountain Village Association and uh, Blue Mountain Resort and the municipalities have to take a good hard look at where this has happened before. Uh, Whistler and, and Mont Tremblant, Aspen and Vail, communities like that where they're, they've hit a certain amount of growth and then suddenly they're going, wow, everybody wants to be here now from a point where know everybody sort of wanted to be here to like everybody wants to be here and so in terms of roads and infrastructure uh these are these are huge things you know there's a demand for hiking trails and and parking you know the craigley national park you know how are you going to handle that? You know Highway 26. What about the speed limits on Highway 26? You know all these all these issues need to be looked at, but they're nothing new. You know there they, there are other resort communities that have experienced these as well. You know when you were asking me my que- that question, I was thinking back to my days when I was director of the Beach and Tennis Club at Mont Tremblant, and You know, it was sort of um, a place where lake owners could launch their boats and moor their boats just off the beach. And I used as director of the Beach and Tennis Club, I used to have about six or seven motorboats, you know, moored off the beach. I saw a picture of it the other day because the the Beach and Tennis Club at at, at Tromla is going through its own problems because a developer has bought it and and the municipality is pushing back saying this is a gem. But getting back to my point, which is now there's a hundred, 150 motorboats parked off the beach and tennis club. And that means there's motorboats going up and down the lake. And so the municipality has to look at congestion and how, how, how much, how many people can any uh, resort or resort town afford to, in, in the same way that blue mountain resort can, only has a certain com- uh, amount of capacity for the chairlifts on, on any given day. The roads have a certain amount of capacity. And so these are issues that the town planners, along with the key partners, have to be looking five and 10 years down the road and say, you know, what happens when the town of the Blue Mountains are calling with the population doubles? What what happens then?
0: So what you're saying is in order to keep our community great over a 20 year horizon in the future, we really have to plan ahead and we have to be organized. It's interesting because right now we're we're seeing a scenario in a local municipality where uh, a moratorium on development has been put in place for uh, a short period of time, uh, potentially up to two years. It's a, a bold move in order to address infrastructure challenges. Do you think that that's where we'll be over the next 10, 20 years sort of reacting when challenges arise, or do you think we have the capability to be planning more long-term?
1: That moratorium was, was, uh, was an organic decision or a decision born out of an organic issue, which is the, the uh, water filtration plant just doesn't have enough capacity. So it wasn't born out of, Hey, we've got a lot more people up here. We got to cool things down. That wasn't the situation. It was we have already reached capacity. So therefore we, we can't let any more building happen because we have reached capacity. So somewhere down the line, you know, maybe five years ago, there may have been somebody at the municipal office raising the flag going in five years from now, we won't have enough capacity at our filtration, our water filtration plant somebody, some engineer or, you know, consulting company has to be looking forward and go, okay, you know, the issue that you had with the water filtration plant, well, you're going to have that same exact issue with this. So you've got to start planning now. So in answer to your question, it's either going to happen through conscious planning and looking forward, or it's going to be as a result of getting to the end of the rope and saying, we've got to stop here and we're going to have to put a moratorium on before we go any further.
0: Well, I guess both approaches are options to take. I personally think that if if our objective is keeping this community a great place to live, the obvious imperative is to do the planning now. So I guess we'll see and we'll see where that leadership comes from and and how all of us in the community ask for that type of leadership going forward. I think we all have a role to play in that. And you know i think what might keep us in this position is that around the policy tables around town councils in social media forums and feeds i don't know that we yet see our community for what it truly is i think sometimes we see it for what our portion or our experience is as opposed to looking at the whole the truth is we are dynamic we are iconic and we are on par with some global destination communities and we have needs for infrastructure investments uh, and supports to serve residents, businesses, visitors alike. So to me, I think we all have different expectations that are, uh, that are valid, but they need to come together. I don't know that we're there yet. So tell me, what do you think about this? Those who are purchasing properties here, newcomers, what are their expectations?
1: You know, the people that move here, they move here based on as a general, this is I'm generally speaking now, so I don't want to generalize for everybody, but when they, when they make a buying decision, they're making a buying decision based on today's conditions. They're not making a buying decision based on, Oh my God, the population might double in 10 years. And, you know, something isn't done. I won't be, it's going to take me 45 minutes to drive you know, five kilometers to the metro store for me to get my groceries. It can be argued that this is part of the human condition, that as a generality, we don't look that far ahead. And thank goodness we do have some people in the communities that make it their business or that, that they think further ahead and say, you know, if our population is going up by 10% a year, you know, the roads can only take so much. Then then that planning has to, has to take place. But I go back to the issue of the water filtration plant. It happened. You know, the issue said, okay, we're out of capacity. We can't give out any more building permits. So somewhere along the line, it got missed. And so that's why Hopefully you get some good town councillors, but on all, not only t- good town councillors, but the the players in the area like yourself and like Dan Skelton and and other people in the area that are pushing the municipality along and saying, look, we're, we're going in this direction. Let's make sure that we don't run into the problems that Whistler did or that Montromland did. And let's look into the future and see how we can address it now.
0: Uh, just as we wind down, uh, for those who may not know you as well as I do, uh, Jerry is well-known for his five-year predictions. Oh, uh,
1: yes. My predictions. My crystal ball. <laughs> so I'm
0: wondering, Jerry, if you can share with us, what do you think the next five years will bring for the Blue Mountain community?
1: Well, I, I, I've said this all along. The original master plan for the village was to have eight large uh, four-story buildings of, only, uh, of which only five were built. And we were supposed to have more commercial space as well. And I truly believe that in the next five years, the final three buildings will be built and they'll be first class buildings. Not that the current buildings aren't first class, but remember, they were built, you know, whatever it is, 15 or 20 years ago. And you'll see a new generation of buildings in the village that will reinvigorate the village even more and bring more people to the village and there'll be more commercial space because of these three buildings built and um so there'll be more pressure on all the resources um, at the mountain in terms of parking it might be going it might have to become a paid for parking in the main parking area in front of the grand georgian and funnel people down towards the south end I, I truly believe that you'll see a water park, you know, uh, come to town in, in the next five years. And we, we will continue to see upward pressure on prices for properties in and around uh, Blue Mountain Resort and, and the private ski clubs. More and more people will be coming here as they did at Whistler and as they, as they did at Mont So you heard it here first, the, the village will, will be complete in five years.
0: Exciting times, more work, and more planning ahead are definitely on the horizon. I think you've shared with us some really interesting perspectives, particularly the the voice of the customer as it relates to properties and lifestyle in the South Georgian Bay region. And I think that's really valuable and helpful to us as we think about what we need to do to plan ahead and prepare For the future, and particularly as you rightly said, to manage growth and to protect the great lifestyle and experience that we all treasure so much. I want to thank you for your work with Blue Mountain Village Association over the years. I want to thank you for the great service that you provide to all of your customers. I often see you outside in the village chit chatting with passers by, looking at the listings in your window, and you're always you know, willing to lend some advice and to share information. And I think that is so important and valuable. And uh, I watch, just want to thank you again. And I look forward to um, seeing how things evolve and working with you and all of our members in the
1: future. Yeah. My pleasure, Andrew. And as you know, it's, it's, it's uh, my pleasure to help help out anybody I can in terms of, you know, shedding some light on the real estate market, the BMVA serves as a, a huge component of making everything work at the resort and what ha- as the resort goes, so the region goes. So I want to thank you for all your you know great time and effort. And in, in, in while I'm here on the podcast, uh, I don't think that people really understand the effort that you and your team and the hours that you and your team have put in over this whole COVID uh, time You know, trying to make things work for the village, and so you know, I thank you and your team for that, Andrew. Thanks for
0: listening to Blue Mountain Village Voices, a production of the Blue Mountain Village Association. For more, go to bluemountainvillage.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. Come on a journey like no other